Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do this Easter Sunday morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read the resurrection story in verses 1 through 10. It will be several other places as well, so have your Bible handy. You can follow along on the screen, or you can follow along in your own copy of God's Word. If you have our digital bulletin and you tap our sermon notes, you can pull up all of this morning's scripture verses to follow along with. You can also see a detailed outline of the sermon notes to help you stay engaged this morning. I want to begin just by reading the story of Easter, Matthew chapter 28. You can find this account or a similar account to it in all four of the Gospels. So maybe later today you want to read about it in Mark chapter 16 or in Luke chapter 24 or in John chapter 20. I would encourage you to read multiple accounts of the Easter story with your family this Sunday morning. For now, join me in reading Matthew chapter 28 verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. One of my favorite parts about this passage in Matthew chapter 28 is when the angel is talking to the women in verse 6. He says, he has risen as he has said. Jesus made a point in his earthly ministry to share with all that would listen that he may go away and die, but he is coming back. And this morning, that truth is just as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. As we contemplate the Easter story this morning, I want us to ask a couple of really hard questions. The easy questions are, do you believe in the resurrection? There's a, a cut and dry yes or no. For many of you who attend our church, uh, the vast majority who come and worship with us week in and week out affirm, yes, I believe in the resurrection. Maybe if you're watching this uh, for the first time, our, our church services, you, you're a little confused about what went on and, and you're wondering if maybe this isn't a myth or something made up. No matter how you answer, that's an easy question for most of us to answer. Do you believe it? Yes or no? And I say emphatically that I believe that Jesus Christ 
not only was crucified and died, but three days later rose from the dead. I believe it with my whole heart. That's the easy question. What about some of the more difficult questions that we might ask? I get questions like this from both believers and non-believers alike. And that question is, or those questions are, why did Jesus have to die? And what difference does it make that he rose from the dead? Even Christians who understand how important the resurrection is based on what Scripture tells us, ask the question, but why? Couldn't God have done it another way? Why was it that God the Son, Jesus Christ, had to die? And, and what difference does it make if he stayed dead? And so this morning, I want to share with you a message I've entitled, The Nature of God and the Resurrection. And I want to do my best to answer those questions for us this morning. For starters, Scripture tells us that as believers, as Christians, we must believe in a resurrection from the dead, both for Jesus Christ and for ourselves. Now, our resurrection from the dead will not be a physical resurrection on earth, but instead a physical resurrection in heaven. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the concept of resurrection is essential to our Christian faith. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's read verse 14 and a few verses following. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. With no resurrection, all of our beliefs are vanity. Look down a couple of verses in verse 17. Paul says again, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Paul is telling us that it's the resurrection that allows us to overcome our sin in Christ. A couple of verses later in verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, that we have no resurrection, and there is no such thing as a resurrection, and that people don't come back from the dead... Verse 19 says, Then we are of all people most to be pitied. A Christian without the resurrection is not a Christian. The resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. You cannot have saving faith in Christ without a resurrected Savior. So we have to ask, why did Jesus have to die and come back to life? Couldn't God have done it some other way? He's God who can do anything. Couldn't he have just wiped sin away with a snap of his fingers? This morning, I think it's important for us to understand something. And bear with me for just a second before you tune out. That our belief that God can do anything is incorrect. Now, before you turn your television off, I don't mean that God is limited in any way. He absolutely is not. But there are things that God cannot do. For instance, God cannot lie. He can't do it. God cannot sin. It is impossible. 
God cannot be imperfect. He is eternally perfect. Those are not limitations on God. Instead, they're a reminder to us that God's greatness and perfection have no limits. There is nothing that could stop God from being all-powerful, almighty, and perfect. Not even God himself. I chuckle at the, the paradoxical questions you hear about whether God could create a rock so big that even he couldn't lift it. Have you heard things like this? When I hear those questions... I like to answer this way. Can God create a rock so big that even he can't lift it? The answer is no. Oh, well, then you're limiting God and his creative power. No, I'm not. God can create a rock as infinitely large as you can fathom or imagine and even greater. God can create a rock the size of this universe, and that may just be a pebble compared to what he could create if he so desired. There is no limit to the size of a rock that God can create. And no matter how large that rock was, he could lift it. You see, when you start talking about God, you start talking about the infinite. And it's impossible for our finite minds to fathom. God has revealed himself to us in in a great many ways. As a matter of fact, all throughout history, people have studied what they call theology, that is, the study of God, and have written books and books and books about the way God has revealed himself. As a matter of fact, three such books that I have in my collection from different classes I've taken over the years are three different publishers' attempts at summarizing everything that they know about God. This one here is a summary of what you can know about God in 436 pages. And it's just the the tip of the iceberg of what God has revealed to us. This one here is a, a little bit bigger. It has 688 pages of a summary of what God has revealed to us, what we can study and know about him. The one I'm currently reading for a class I'm taking has 1,290 pages. This book is as thorough a theology book as you'll find. And yet when we think about all we have studied, all that we know about what God has revealed to us, it's just the beginning. God is so great and infinite that no amount of pages can contain what he knows, and who he is. And it's that nature this morning, an understanding of his infinite nature that allows us to see why the resurrection is so essential to our Christian faith. We have six core beliefs at First Baptist Church, and our third core belief says this, God alone is eternally perfect. That is our our inadequate way of describing in one sentence a summary of what we know about God. It's not 1,290 pages. It's a simple sentence. But in that sentence, it tells us two important truths about God. He is eternal and He is perfect. And those are two of the characteristics that show us why it is essential that we believe and know the resurrection. If you have your your bulletin in front of you, or maybe you've opened those sermon notes, you can follow along, maybe jot down some notes of your own. I've got three 
notes for you to write down about the nature of God and the nature of man. And the first one is this. I want you to write down God's justice and man's sin. I want to talk about God's justice and man's sin. God is perfectly just. That is, he is right or righteous. He always does the right thing. Think of a a judge from a human perspective who has the responsibility of deciding right and wrong in different cases. Now imagine that judge never getting it incorrect, knowing all the evidence, knowing everything that you could possibly know, and always coming to the perfect, just, right conclusion. We know judges fail us, but God in his perfection never does. God is perfectly just and right. We read about this in in several places throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Job 34 12 tells of a truth God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. He always does what is right. Colossians 3.25 says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. God doesn't look at us and group us into categories. Instead, he judges fairly and justly. The wrongdoer always gets punished. The judge always gets it right. God is perfect in his justice, but man breaks God's perfection in creation when we sin we have god's perfect just righteousness on one hand and man messing it up with his own selfish ambition and and man does not just make a mistake but he breaks perfection and this is so key and foundational to understanding god's justice and man's sin That when man breaks perfection, it is an eternal sin. I hear often, why would God send someone to hell for something as small as a lie? And that's where we understand our inability to comprehend how serious all sin is. And think about even the slightest imperfection eternally changes an object. If you were a child and you were playing ball in the house and you broke a lamp and it shattered into pieces and and you tried to glue it all back together and fix it so your parents wouldn't know, you can put the pieces back together theoretically, but there will always be cracks. There will always be glue binding together where there shouldn't be. There will always be imperfections. You can never in all of eternity make that lamp the way it was again. I collected baseball cards when I was a kid and you would look for these perfect mint condition no crease cards and as soon as you got the smallest crease in a card it doesn't matter how much heat you tried to apply how much you tried to flatten it out that crease was always there the card was eternally imperfect even the smallest and slightest chip of glass is irreparable and is eternally imperfect damaged 
Or you may be able to, to fill it in. You may be able to sand it down. You may be able to melt it and re-pour it. But as it was created, you will never again take the perfect creation and make it perfect again. No, man's sin against a perfect, right, and just God, man's sin always is an eternal sin and therefore deserves an eternal punishment. So we have to understand that in God's justice, in his fairness, in his rightness, he cannot let sin go unpunished. He always does what is right, and our sin deserves eternal punishment. And so God, being just and right and fair, divvies out what is just and right and fair and gives the punishment for sin, which is death. The debt of death has to be paid. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Just as when you go to work, you earn a paycheck based on what you have done, worked, and provided your company. In our own lives, we are earning a paycheck based on what we do of death because of our sin. God is perfect and just, and man's sinfulness is eternal and in his fairness, God must punish man with death. The second part of God's nature I want you to understand is not just that God is just, but I also want you to understand God's eternal nature and man's created nature. I told you that our, our third core belief is that God alone is eternally perfect. And this eternal word here is one that, that we can gloss over and think of in finite terms. And I encourage you this morning not to do that. Can we understand that God is the only one who has existed in eternity past and the only one who will exist in eternity future? But we mentioned some things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot be imperfect. He cannot go against his nature. Therefore, God cannot cease to exist. God cannot eternally die. It's impossible. It goes against his eternal nature. He couldn't be eternal if he stopped living. Man, on the other hand, is a created being. And so compared to God, there is no comparison. We as human beings were created to live forever in the future, but we have a starting place. We have a day of creation. God alone is eternal. He has always existed. Psalm 102 verse 12 says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 says, Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die, speaking of the tri triune God. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He is saying, God, you have always existed. You have always been right. You have always been just. Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is saying, I have always existed and will always exist. It is impossible for God to cease to exist. It is impossible for God to be eternally dead. 
A simple, perfect man then could not pay for the sins of the world. You know, in theory, in theory, a human being who was born without sin nature and lived a life perfect could die in the place of another sinful man. In theory, it seems as if one man could die for another man's sin so long as he didn't have to pay for his own sin. But because he is finite, he could only pay for a finite amount of sin. Therefore, even if God decided to recreate Adam and and not allow him to sin, his death would not be sufficient for the sins of the world. Because that Adam would be created and finite. But an infinite God, an infinite God who would take on flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. An infinite God who has always existed and always will exist is now in the infinite realm, is able to, to overcome an infinite amount of sin. Why was it that Jesus is the one that had to die? Why is it He was our sacrifice? Because He is an eternal, everlasting God. The last truth I want you to write down, the last characteristic of God that I want to compare to man's is is this. God's perfect love and man's desperateness. The truth is, man cannot escape the penalty of death on his own. We are incapable of paying any amount back to God that would sufficiently pay for our sin outside of our own eternal death. We're in a position of hopelessness and desperation. But I think it's fair to say God would not be perfectly loving to allow man to die eternally. As a matter of fact, what we read about in 1 John is that God is love. His nature is love. His character is love. And He cannot go against that. And therefore, being a loving God, He always will act in a way that allows for the redemption of you and I. We see a beautiful example of this after the very first sin recorded in all of history. When Adam and Eve first ate of the forbidden fruit, we see a picture of God's mercy in the midst of His judgment. Read with me Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. And I want you to notice something maybe you haven't noticed before. As we read this, I want you to ask yourself, why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? Why is he refusing to let them live where he had originally created them to live? Let's read these verses together. Genesis 3, verses 22 and 23 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. I think often we read Genesis chapter 3 and think part of Adam and Eve's punishment was banishment from the garden. That's not what verse 22 says, is it? God looks and he understands that they're in a sinful state. 
And he says out loud in Genesis 3, 22. Now, lest they reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat. The tree that gives life and, and lets you live forever. If they were to take that fruit from the tree of life in their sinful state, they would eternally live in their sinful state. And God, in his loving mercy, will not allow it. God is perfectly loved and casts them out of the garden not for punishment, but for protection. Because he has a plan of redemption all the way back in the beginning. We see an example in the garden of where the justice of God meets his love and grace and mercy. And all throughout scripture, we see glimpses of God's perfect, just, right character that must punish sin, mixing with his love and his desire for humanity to know him. And so what we find is, is that the moment of history when Jesus Christ is crucified, it is not just a glimpse, it's at that exact moment where the justice of God meets the love of God. This morning, we, we ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus have to die? And the sad thing is, it's because only death will pay for our sinful life. Why did it have to be Jesus? Why couldn't it have been anyone else? Because only Jesus has existed eternally as God himself. Only Jesus could cover an infinite amount of sin. Why did he have to raise from the dead? Because his character will not allow him to stay in the grave. His character will not allow him to be eternally dead. No, God cannot go against his character. And even death cannot hold God. As we study the resurrection, we understand that it is not just a story of the, the power of God, but it's a story of the power of God to save. As we wrap up this morning... I want you to watch just a short video explaining how the resurrection applies to your life and to my life. And as we watch this, this short video, I want you to ask yourself, where am I in this video? Have I trusted that Jesus Christ, God himself, can forgive me of my sin and show me how to live? This morning as you watch this, would you put yourself in this diagram and ask God, will you save me through your death and resurrection?